Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 2.52, and we will be considering today, among other things, the pastoral point, the pastoral point that the shepherd teacher, the teaching shepherd is making at this point in Hebrews, and we'll be going to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 for increment 2.52. And we'll also be inserting a special word, I believe, that may be repeated in other increments, a word on the being saved and the perishing, just what that means and what the distinctions are, and several other points. But before the message and before every time we either communicate or receive the word of God, a fourfold necessity pertains to us. First, we entrust our spirit into the hands of God, where it's the Holy Spirit that teaches our human spirit. Secondly, in this twofold urgency, we commit our souls to God, who is called a faithful creator in 1 Peter 4.19. Thirdly, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, for we are a kingdom of priests, and this is our reasonable service, because it's done in mimesis or imitation of Jesus' offering of his own body in the will of God in Hebrews 10.10. And fourthly, we give our hearts to God the Father in order to be taught of him, for they will be taught of God, said the prophet Isaiah, repeated by Jesus in John chapter 6. And so we are here to be taught of God, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.9 also. So that's the fourfold urgency. And this is also urgent if we are to fulfill the mandate to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Given that, here's the pastoral point. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7 will read my translation as I have it so far. For if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, please notice first covenant there, then there would have been no room to seek for a second one, second covenant, Deuteros, for finding fault with it, and the best translations have this as the covenant is what he found fault with, but there's kind of a clarification to be made on that. Finding fault with it, God says to them, That's the OCC, the Old Covenant Community. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took hold of their hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them. Now that's the Greek text, and it is from... The Septuagint Greek text, I disregarded them. Another way of saying it is I rejected them or I neglected them, says the Lord. Now, there's a question here of interpretation. The Hebrew text has, instead of they did not abide by my covenant and I disregarded them, the Hebrew text has they did not abide by my covenant though I was married to them. Or though I espouse to them, says the Lord. Now, which is the best translation? Should we opt for the Hebrew text here over the Greek text? 
Well, that's a dialectical point we'll have to make sometime during the course of this teaching. The pastor who wrote Hebrews is an exemplary teaching shepherd. In increment 251, we had a few comments to make about teaching shepherds as we continued in our study. As such, this pastor does what he's supposed to do. He watches for the souls of his readers, and he's aware that he will have to give an account for them on the day of judgment in Hebrews 13:17. The accountability of the shepherd teacher is great. It is he is up for double judgment or a double discipline according to James 3:1, which says let there not be many masters of assemblies or pastors or shepherds over congregations because of such is the greater condemnation is one translation. He has authority, and 1 Timothy 5.17, for that reason, worthy of double honor, as the scripture calls it, which can be explained another time, but he has a double accountability. The pastoral point, then, of bringing the new covenant into this homily, the pastoral point, the concern to the pastor, the pastor's point, in bringing the new covenant into the homily at this point is to encourage his readers to move away and move on from that which is old and antiquated and ready to vanish altogether, as we're going to learn in Hebrews 8.13. He doesn't want them to vanish, and here we're going to have a trajectory toward A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And with the destruction, of course, of apostate Jerusalem, which Paul calls the present Jerusalem in contrast with the above Jerusalem. All that becomes very significant, not only in Hebrews, but also in Galatians, as we'll see when we entertain the Galatian connection very soon. And also in Revelation, which in itself is a tale of two cities. We're moving into a tale of two covenants here. So the reasoning regarding the new covenant is the same reasoning behind the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Christ, self-sacrifice of the Son of God, which renders the offering of animal sacrifices and ritual sacrifices unnecessary. To perish or to be disappearing, as the Aramaic understands it, is to remain identified with a vanishing covenant in this context. And so perishing has the nuance of meaning of disappearing or vanishing. And this is essentially what happens to the old man, the palaios anthropos, or the archaos person, the archaos self, if not in this life at the judgment seat of Christ when fire purifies and causes the old to disappear, and also all works that were done in the energy of the old man disappear. But to perish or to be disappearing is to remain identified in this context with a vanishing covenant, a covenant that by now, in our time, of course, has vanished altogether. To be of the category of humanity who are being saved, on the other hand, is to be identified with a new and better covenant and with a ministry of the spirit of life 
and of righteousness. And that's a great correlation to 2 Corinthians 3.6. We have a ministry not of death but of, this, of life, not of the letter but of the spirit, not of condemnation but of righteousness. And so we today as able ministers of the new covenant is to be of the category of humanity who are being saved. It's to be identified with a new and better covenant and with the ministry of the spirit of life and of righteousness, not of the letter of death and of condemnation. The story is told there in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 through 18. It is to be members that is, to be being saved is to be members of the New Covenant community, members in particular of the mystical body of Christ with its head in hypostatic union. Its head is Jesus Christ, God and man in one person, the two natural person, Jesus Christ. For the end denoted by redemption, which we started all this off with a few months ago, the end denoted by redemption, is called the supreme good. The supreme good, in turn, is called the whole Christ. So what is the end denoted by redemption? Well, it's the supreme good. But what is the supreme good? Christ himself. But the whole Christ, the whole Christ is the head in hypostatic union and the body joined to the head. That's the supreme good, which the law, the just and mysterious law of the cross converts all the evils of the human race into that supreme good. And the supreme test case for that is Saul, who in his evil was transformed into a man who said it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The evil of Paul transformed into the supreme good where he became part and a member in particular of the whole Christ. Now I want to interject here, and I debated about this until even about an hour before coming to do this message today. I want to insert a word on the being saved and the perishing, or we could say the being saved versus the perishing. And because this, I've dubbed this year in two different ways for Tetelestai Phalanx. First of all, we called it the year of the Lord, the Spirit. And secondly, the year of the being saved and the perishing, or the perishing and the being saved. So this inserted word, which I may repeat in a subsequent increment, is helpful to our understanding. Another word for the being saved is those who believe those who are the believing. Those who believe does indeed indicate a special category of people. They are what I call the being saved during this present evil eon. And that's another word that we should be very conscious of. This present evil age or eon is Galatians 1.4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins according to the will of God to rescue us, strong word there, from this present evil age. The Jerusalem that is now, Paul calls in later on in Galatians, as we're going to see hopefully, the Jerusalem that is now or the present Jerusalem is identified with the present evil age. The Jerusalem from above is identified with 
future world and the messianic age. So those who believe does indicate a special category of people. They are the being saved during this present evil age. They are the new covenant community who, through their believing, experience in some measure and to some small degree the life of the coming age. That's what John 3.16 means. They shall not, not only not perish, but have the life of the coming age or experience the life of the coming age by believing. And that word believing is used some 99 times in John, usually in a present participle, which indicates a state of believing and therefore a state of being saved as opposed to a state of perishing. The state of perishing, of course, is temporal. The state of being saved is everlasting and goes into a phase in an immortal body that is extraordinary and unimaginable. And so rather than perishing or disappearing, the believing experience the life of the coming age. Rather than perishing with a disappearing or vanished old covenant. This new covenant community experience is a real experience but only in, in a small way an experience of the kingdom of God with its peace and joy and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul, in fact, defines the kingdom of God, which we would say is the experience of the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's always in the Holy Spirit, also known as the Lord the Spirit. Where that Lord the Spirit is, there is liberty, there is transformative grace. So also in Romans 15, 13, it says that you may experience the joy and peace in the believing, in the act of believing. It's a supernatural act. It's, it is evoked by the Holy Spirit and sustained by the Holy Spirit, who is called the spirit of faith. So in that sense, only those who believe or who are the believing experience the promised spirit. Though the Spirit, who is called the Lord the Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3.17, already being poured out generously, Titus 3.6, is destined eventually to be poured out on all flesh. Now Titus 3.5 says that it's not according to our works that we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And then he says... By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out generously on us. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit generously on us is a saving pouring out. It is a pouring out of the Spirit as he acts in salvation. And so when the Lord says in Joel 2.28, I will pour my Spirit out on all flesh, that means I will pour out the Spirit with the result of salvation by mercy on all flesh. The connection between Titus 3.6 and Joel 2.28 is a phenomenally important connection and correlation. And so again, the Lord, the Spirit, already being poured out copiously, 
is destined eventually to be poured out on all flesh, generating faith in all. For this same spirit is called the spirit of faith. As the spirit of faith, he generates faith. When the spirit is poured out on someone, that same spirit of faith generates faith in the person, evokes it, ignites it. We could even say creates it in, in a person in 2 Corinthians 4.13. And it also means if the spirit is to be poured out on all flesh, generating that faith as the spirit of faith, that all of humanity are destined to come to the unity of the faith. For the spirit is poured out on all flesh. And so when Paul says in another 4.13, Ephesians 4.13, there's another connection, another link. 2 Corinthians 4.13 and Ephesians 4.13. So 4.13 isn't just a powerful engine. So once again, all humanity are destined to come to the unity of the faith because all flesh will have the spirit who generates faith poured out upon them. This is what I would call a rationale of universal salvation. So when I say, when I say experience the Holy Spirit, that's a dangerous term because there's a lot of people who are basing their whole Christianity on what they call experiences of the Holy Spirit and they may not be genuine or they may be. So when I say experience the Holy Spirit, I mean the companionship of the Holy Spirit, also known as the Lord the Spirit, that that companionship is known and in a way, yes, sensed. Secondly, it means that the fruit of the Spirit is produced in those who experience the Holy Spirit or the Lord, the life-giving Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the experience of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace. Notice the connection. Love, joy, and peace, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Righteousness, peace, and joy the experience of the kingdom of God in the Holy Spirit. Another essential correlation. Galatians 5.22 with Romans 14.17. And both connected to the Holy Spirit, who is also known as, and this will be driven home in 2023, the Lord, the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is the experience of the Spirit, which is love, joy, and peace, or the experience of the kingdom of God, which is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So con connect Galatians 5.22 to 23 with Romans 14.17, Romans 15.13, Hebrews 6.5, which talks about the companionship of the Holy Spirit. The peace and joy that goes with the believing with faith as an absolutely supernatural act. Total trust and complete obedience, or the obedience of faith, as Romans calls it, and Romans is actually bracketed with that concept, the obedience of faith, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26. Total trust and complete obedience, or the obedience of faith, is not that which yields justification, but on the other hand, being justified by God's faithfulness, revealed in Jesus' obedience, we are both counseled and privileged to be 
believing. Believing is a great privilege. The believing is a great privilege. The old hymn, which we sing in this congregation from time to time, rings true, or better, sings true, which says, trust and obey. It also states that there is no other way to be happy in Jesus. And in a way that's true, in a special way that's true, it sings true because in the believing, which is the trust and the obedience of faith, the God of hope fills us with joy and peace. The experience of the kingdom of God by the Lord, the Spirit. So not only that, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is, of the Lord, the Spirit, supernatural virtues are produced. And with those, some are called theological virtues. Thomas Aquinas called faith, hope, and love theological virtues. Supernatural virtues born in a sufficient remnant of the believing can affect historical renaissance. And by that, I mean it can bring about redemption of history from periods of decline. So important is the fruit of the Spirit that when it becomes a fruitful and prolific harvest through the New Covenant community, it becomes the power and the pivot to effect historical renaissances. I don't mean by that the historical renaissance, but I mean renaissances of history or redemption of history from periods of decline like the one we're in now. And so the hope is spiritual, the hope is divine solution, not human solutions, not political solutions, not military solutions, not activism, unless you're talking about divine activism. The fruit of the Spirit is the effect or the produce of our grace participation in the Spirit of grace, which he's also called in Hebrews 10.29. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, the Spirit of truth in John 14.17 is called the Spirit of grace, but specifically in connection with the blood of the covenant and with the Son of God. In Hebrews 10.29, the spirit of grace. So I'll say again, the fruit of the spirit is the effect or the produce of our graced participation in the spirit of grace, of God in us willing and doing that which is to his own good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. And this is what the new covenant community is all about. For in them God has placed his spirit. Another new covenant prediction is Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. I will take out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh. Paul picks up that strand in 2 Corinthians where he talks about the laws being written not on tablets of stone, but tables of the heart, fleshly tables of the heart. And also in 36, 27 of Ezekiel, I will place my spirit in them, that's the Lord, the spirit, and cause them to walk in my statutes and to do my judgments, which means, well, it all sums up as the commandments of God are fulfilled in them by the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in them. What he's dealing with here with statutes and ordinances is all summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus even said, all the law and all the prophets hang on this peg, 
and that is those two commandments, which are a, a twin commandments in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six to 40. So again, this is what the new covenant community is all about. God has placed his spirit in them, causes them to walk in conformity to his statutes in their hearts of flesh. He has inscribed or chiseled his word. The Holy Spirit is ever chiseling in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians 3, 3, Ezekiel 36, 26, God has inscribed his laws on the hearts of the new covenant community and in their minds so that his will is done willingly and supernaturally, naturally, supernaturally, naturally, even spontaneously, by and in them. Romans 8, 4. That spontaneity is connected with liberty, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is that liberty. Liberty from the letter, liberty from condemnation, liberty from death. In any case, now that's just an insertion on the being saved and the perishing. In any case, the penultimate end of redemption, wrought in the crucified and resurrected Christ, is a messianic community of human persons partaking of the divine nature. In a theological exegesis of Hebrews, this is what we call ecclesiology, the study of the church the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ. So I'll repeat that again. The penultimate end of redemption wrought in the crucified and resurrected Christ is a messianic community of human persons partaking of the divine nature. That's the new covenant community, a community of human persons partaking of the divine nature. That community is called ecclesia or more expanded, tain ecclesian to theu, in Galatians 1.13, God's church, the church of God, the community of God. It's a messianic community united to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God and of Christ. The church, which is Christ's body, it's also called in Ephesians 1.22-23. The ultimate end of redemption is all of created reality in Christ and comprised of Christ. So in that sense, Christ would be the head of all created reality and all of created reality over all of time would be the mystical body of the head. And that's a universal restoration. And that comes about, according to 1 Corinthians 15.24, at the end, 24 to 28, that is. For now... And we do live in this curious place called now. For now, of the new covenant community, it can be said that Christ is all and in you all. Colossians 3.11. And that's a kind of a forecast of God being in Christ and God being in all when all is in Christ. In the telos, which is the ultimate eschatological end, that's an important word also, telos, T-E-L-O-S, found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and elsewhere. The ultimate eschatological end in that telos, when the ultimate end of redemption is reached, 
then Christ will be all in all as God is all in all in 1 Corinthians 15:28 again right now in this time in between the two great eschatological changes and alterations right now in this agona this clash of the eons the whole Christ is Jesus Christ whose blood ratified the new covenant along with and in union with the new covenant community who are the new creation in union with him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Galatians 6.15. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is engulfed already by the new creation and as such to the new covenant community engulfed by the new covenant community, part of the new covenant community, a member in particular of the corporate body of Christ. So the Christ is not the whole Christ without his body. The body is not the whole Christ without its head. Nor is any member of the body the whole Christ. The body joined to the head is also called the household of God, over which Jesus is the great archpriest, Hebrews 3.6, Hebrews 10.21. Hebrews 8.6, then let's pick up again where we left, where we are in our exegesis. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a superior ministry, that means superior to Aaron's priestly ministry, And with that, he is the mediator of a better covenant. That thought is held all the way to Hebrews 12, 24, when it says that you have come to a heavenly Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in celebration, to the spirits of justified people made perfect, and to God, the judge of all, who was judged for all and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, all the way up in Hebrews 12, 24, all the way at the end almost of Hebrews. That new covenant is called the everlasting covenant. So this thought of the covenant is held all the way to the very end of Hebrews where there is the final benediction in 13, 20, and 21, And then the final word of encouragement in 1322 to 25. So he is now the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on the basis of better promises. Those promises are essentially those that are nucleated in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. And also, as we just mentioned, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. So better promises include, hey, this time I'm going to write my laws on your heart. I'm going to put the intention to do them on your heart. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you to do them. Those are better promises than what came with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant had a conditional promise. Do well and you'll live. That's not very encouraging. So the better promises on which the Second Covenant is based are also what are called the exceeding great and precious promises in 2 Peter 1.4 which have to do with our participation in the divine nature. Why are these the same promises? Because 
In Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my ordinances is just like partaking of the divine nature, isn't it? If the spirit's in us, we are partaking of the divine nature, the upshot of those better promises. The second covenant then describes the participation this participation aforementioned in terms of the God of Israel placing his spirit in the members of the new covenant community and causing them to walk according to his ordinances. In fact, the best translation of that is, I will act in them to cause them to act. And that's exactly how Paul interpreted it in Philippians 2.13. God in you, willing and doing. And that's a remarkable So the new covenant community is those in whom God causes them to walk according to his ordinances and the divine writing of his laws on the new hearts of its members. A new heart, new inclinations, new appetition, new ambitions, new everything, new desires. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, again, a link, very important link with Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. In fact, I never consider the one without the other in those two passages. Thus imparting to the community the inclination as well as the power to fulfill what is pleasing to God. Philippians 2, 13. What is pleasing to God, of course, culminates in and is essentially means a faith that works by love in Galatians 5, 6. At this juncture... One can appreciate the important correlation between 2 Peter 1.4 and Philippians 2.13 and the relevance of both to the New Covenant community, the present penultimate end denoted by redemption. So again, let's get right into the heart of our exegesis with Hebrews 8.7. For if indeed the first covenant had been without fault, then there would have been no room to seek for a second, that's deuteros, D-E-U-T-E-R-A-S, a key word in another increment recently, for finding fault with it. Now, sometimes people translate that with them, meaning the old covenant community. But there's a kind of a twofold sense here where God actually finds co- uh, fault with the covenant. Just like a state, a beautiful state like California can have an, a fault underneath it in terms of an earthquake fault. So a beautiful covenant made by God can also come with a fault. So the days are coming, he says. He says to them, finding fault with it, and that's the way I'm going with this so far. That is the first covenant. God says to them, this time he does speak to the old covenant community. Look, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by their hands and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide by my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. I'm going with the Septuagint translation rather than the Hebrew, which has a marital metaphor. And we will, in closing, deal with that marital metaphor. The old also known as First Covenant Community. I call them the OCC. For their part, listen carefully, couldn't remain faithful to God's covenant. They couldn't because it was bilateral 
and it put a requirement on the fundamentally flawed humanity. Consequently, the law, the old or the first covenant, was a faithful disciplinarian. It acted beautifully as a faithful disciplinarian, inclining, and we could even say driving them to Christ, their Messiah, to be justified by his faithfulness. There's the Galatian connection, which we'll take up in a future increment, Wednesday increment soon, Galatians 3.24. So I think it's fair play to bring the epistle of Paul to the Galatians into play here, and we will in a future increment, because Paul there exposes the fundamental weakness of the Sinaitic covenant, or the covenant made on Mount Sinai, especially with regard to its angelic and human mediation. It's bilaterality instead of its unilaterality. God is one, says Galatians 3.19, etc. So I'm asking this question as we wind to a close. Was the fault in the covenant or in the people or in both? The answer, I think, in 8.9b, the fault was with the old covenant community because they, for their part, did not remain faithful to my covenant. But, on the other hand, they did not because arguably they could not. This is the weakness of the flesh. The law itself was weak and therefore flawed in that sense because of the flesh which is a supernatural power. Now, we're dealing with flesh in an uppercase means, flesh, which is a, an eschatological suprahuman enemy of God and of man, flesh. And then there's flesh with a small f, lowercase f, which simply indicates the inherent weakness of our humanity and our inherent incapability of pleasing God in the energy of our own human strength. So the weakness of the flesh is here. The law itself was weak because of the flesh, higher case flesh, which is a supernatural power or principality which held sway over the weak flesh, lower case flesh, of the people of the old covenant community. The fault then was with the covenant in the sense that because of the weakness of the people or the flesh, the fault was with the covenant but it was because of the weakness of the flesh. The law, weakened by the flesh, that supranatural enemy, suprahuman enemy, and it was not fulfilled because of the flesh, the lowercase f, which is inherent human weakness. So before we consider the Galatian connection, we'll look at Romans 8 and then close. Romans chapter 8 which deals with the subject by stating the problem along with the divine solution. And so I'm closing with what I call a Targumic expanded paraphrase of Romans 8. I've done that for the whole of Romans, and it's in my files somewhere, but not yet published formally at least. But Romans 8.3, and this again, this is a greatly expanded, like the Targums, which expanded the Old Testament books, this one is greatly expanded and it has bracketed commentary, which you'll note in the printed version, which will be forthcoming. Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do. Here it is. The fault of the law, the powerlessness of the law. 
For what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh. In other words, there is a power stronger than the law. It's the flesh, which along with sin, hijacked the law for its own purpose. All of this, of course, was done in the permission of God. For what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, and that's the inimical cosmic power of sin. There we have the same meaning, sin with a capital S, flesh with a capital F. The inimical power of sin, which both abducted the law and became operative in human members through setting up a base of operations there. So what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh that won that wrestling match, God did. God did what the law couldn't do. God himself did. How? By sending. That word sending, John 3.17. He sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world like the law did, but to save the world. John, 1 John 4.8-10. Sent his son to become a propitiation for our sins that we may live through him. Sent is also gave, didn't spare, but freely handed over his son. Romans 4.25, he handed over his son for our sins and raised him up from the dead for our justification. And so, again, let me do it without the brackets here. For what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, capital F, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, small f-l-e-s-h, and for sin, that's peri there, p-e-r-i, for, it's like huper, that is, on behalf of or as a sin offering. We could even say as a sin offering. And as a sin offering... He condemned sin, not human beings. He condemned sin, not human beings, in the flesh. That means the flesh of his incarnate son, who became sin, who became a curse for us, the curse of the law. And notice this. This is where the new covenant comes in in earnest, in verse 4. In order that the rectitude or I called it the God-approved livingness. Righteousness is good too, but it's in a special nuance. It's the righteousness that the law requires. In order that, again, the rectitude or God-approved livingness required by the law would be fulfilled in us. That means in those who are liberated from the suprahuman powers of sin and death. That is, in those who comport themselves, that's what I put for the word walk. Walk is used metaphorically here, meaning to behave in a particular manner. Walk, therefore, has an ethical tone here, though not specifically. So in those who comport themselves, not in those who comport themselves in the flesh, but in the spirit. Let me look at it again, give it again in 8.4, starting with 8.4 without the brackets, which can be confusing not only to you but to me. In order that the rectitude required by the law would be filled in us 
who walk in a manner not determined by the flesh, F-L-E-S-H, but by the Spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, the Spirit of life, also known as the Lord, the Spirit, who resides in our members in Romans 8, 11, and therefore making us walking temples. What is the new covenant? It is the Holy Spirit in us. When we walk according to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us fulfills the righteousness required by the law. The law was flawed and had its fault, not in itself, the law in itself, within itself, having come from God, is righteous and just and good and beautiful and glorious even. It has a glory attached to it. But the flaw connected with it was the flesh of mankind, the weakness of humanity, which is always overcome by the inimical enemy called the flesh which is also known as the sin that hijacked the law. That story is told all through Romans 7. It's all the time we have for this increment. Hopefully there's been enough seeds dropped here to start a harvest in your soul. So thanks for your attentiveness. We're done.